You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Good morning, church. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. All religions are true. God can be reached by different religions. Many rivers flow by many ways, but they all fall into the sea. They are all one. If you do good things, it will balance out your bad actions, and you will find salvation. We're fixing my mic. That's good. If you picked up that these are all not good quotes, you did right. Man is the measure of all things. You are the master of your destiny. You can influence, direct, and control your own environment. You can make life what you want it to be. So we had it pointed out for us, before I even got through them all, that that's heresy, and that's good. I wanted to start off strong, really make sure you're awake. Um, yeah, these are all quotes from atheists, leaders of other religions, uh, ancient philosophers throughout world history, and these are the same lies that are still being propagated today. Many people fall for them, but we need to know what they are. God's denied, man's dignity is diminished, the purpose of living life is extinguished, and everything that the Bible teaches is tossed aside as a fool's hope. Sadly, many people believe these lies and turn to them, um, and many people who grow up in the church end up leaving the church and abandoning the good things that they were taught, turning away from Christ. But this life without God that the world wants to live is hopeless. This life without God misses the very reason that humans were created, for God's glory and for the enjoyment of being in relationship with him. The worldview presented fulfills what Paul wrote in Romans 1, 19 through 23. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the world tells us these lies, and the world wants us to abandon the true and living God. But there is a better way. There is someone who is the ultimate revelation from God, who is supreme over all. There's a prophet who shows us the truth about God and tells us how to be reconciled to him and to live our lives well. There's a priest who made perfect and final purification for sins, bringing all those who believe in his name into God's family. There's a king who sits enthroned over all, who is worthy of our praise, worship, allegiance, and glad service. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Nathan, I'm the youth director here, uh, and our text for this morning is Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Just to give us a little context, uh, the letter to the Hebrews was written to Jewish believers in the first century AD. 
This prologue, verses 1 through 4 is the prologue, we'll look at the first three verses, uh, outlines and introduces the author's main intent in the letter, which was to show the supremacy of Christ and warn the readers not to fall away from him. For these Jewish Christians, as they faced persecution, they were tempted to go back to the old covenant, the old system, to find salvation. The writer of this letter warns them, however, that there is no salvation in anything but Christ. And, in fact, everything about the Old Covenant pointed forward to a greater reality, which is Jesus Christ. So in the bulk of the letter, the main body, the writer shows Jesus as better than angels, better than Moses and Joshua, better than Aaron, and better than the Old Testament system of sacrifices and the Old Testament priests. Throughout all of this, he sprinkles warning passages, telling them not to abandon such a great salvation as that found in Jesus. And likewise for us, as we live in a society hostile to Christianity and hostile to God, we also need these reminders of the great salvation that has been accomplished. Jesus is the great prophet, the one who reveals truth and shows us the Father, and who is, in fact, God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the great priest, the one who um, made purification for sin, full and final in his sacrifice on the cross and who sat down after this completed work. And Jesus is the great king, enthroned above all, ruling over all things, and he deserves our complete and humble service. This, these are the truths that these three verses at the start of Hebrews remind us of. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you have not left us um, without revelation from you, without God and without hope in the world. Lord Jesus, you reign above all. You are superior. You are better than anything this world has to offer. We worship you this morning. We thank you that you are the great prophet who reveals truth, the priest who has accomplished full and final purification for sin, and we worship you as the great king and we long to gladly serve you. Be with us today as we look at your word. Speak to us, convict our hearts, encourage us, and draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we're going to see three things about Jesus in this passage, the three offices of Christ, they're often called. And so first we see that Jesus is the ultimate prophet, the one who reveals truth. So the author writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then you see the contrast. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So you can see that contrast between the many and varied ways in which God spoke to his people through the prophets before Christ, and then... Uh, how, it, how he has revealed himself fully and completely and finally in Jesus Christ. 
And so that initial reference stretches all the way back to the beginning of the world, how God has revealed himself through Adam, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and all the prophets leading up to the incarnation of Jesus. This revelation of himself was partial, not complete. This revelation of himself pointed forward to a future time in which he would speak more definitively and reveal the culmination of his salvific work in Christ. Now, it's important that we note that the former way of God revealing himself and speaking is not bad, it is incomplete. Um, actually, the office of the prophet in the Old Testament always pointed forward to a coming prophet who would finally reveal the fullness of God. And so as we look at that, we don't discard the Old Testament, but as we read it, we read it and see forward how it points to Christ. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19, Moses prophesies of a prophet like him, but greater than him, who is to come in the future. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So this passage is a paradigm of the prophet. You see it fulfilled partially in every prophet uh, that comes along, but then it points forward ultimately to the greater reality, the greater revelation, the greater prophet in Jesus himself. So as we read in that passage, prophets would speak the words of God, right? He said, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And what do we read of Jesus? If you can picture in your mind some passages that might speak to Jesus doing this very thing. Jesus not only spoke God's words, but he is called the word of God. John 1, 1 and 14 say, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So why is Jesus able to fully and finally reveal God as the ultimate prophet sent from God? The author of Hebrews explains in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus is able to do this because he is God's Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then the start of verse 3 is important as we look at this as well. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's a pretty big role for a prophet, don't you think? I don't know if you could ever say of Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah that they uh, were agents of God's creation. Or they uphold the world um, through the word of, of his power. But Jesus, the Son of God, and the ultimate revelation from God is the full and final revelation from him because he is God in the flesh. Jesus was fully God and fully man in the incarnation, and he reveals fully the nature of God. Paul agrees with this in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, speaking of Christ as the image of the invisible God, the agent of creation, the sustainer of all things, the head of the church, 
and the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Scripture is clear in many, many places on the deity of Christ, telling us time and again that Jesus is God in the flesh, the fullest revelation of God. We see Jesus, the ultimate prophet, because in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and the radiance, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So, taking all this, seeing all of this, if this is who Jesus is, the ultimate prophet, full of grace and truth, God himself who cannot speak any lies, then why would we turn away from him? Why would we doubt what he says and exchange it for the lies of the world? The danger for the Jewish Christian audience of the letter to the Hebrews was to abandon Christ and return to the old shadows of him found in the law and the prophets, in the old system. The danger for us is probably not the same. We're probably not looking to go back to sacrifices in that way. But there are many things that would want to draw us away from Christ. The danger for us is turning away to the lies that the world is telling us, or even simply not seeking to know Jesus deeply, just content to live our life and profess faith but not actually seek him or know him. Jesus reveals that God exists, that sin separates us from God, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And what that looks like is forsaking our sin, repenting of it, and walking in the newness of life that Christ brings. The world says, as I said before, God is dead. Man is king. We're here for a short time, so enjoy your life while you can, because when you're dead, that's it. It's just over. Contained within this worldview is a multitude of other lies that maybe don't sound as blatantly obvious, but that we, we will sometimes fall for. If you have more money, you'll finally be happy. If you have more fame, you'll finally be happy. If you pursue the lusts of your flesh, whatever that may be, you'll finally be happy. All of it is nonsense, yet, sadly, many of us often fall for it. How often do you find yourself straying from, straying from God's word? How often do you find yourself looking for joy and satisfaction in things other than Christ? The truth is that lasting joy and freedom and peace is found only in Christ. And for the Christian, life on this earth is difficult as we battle sin and temptation, face persecution for our faith, and seek to live the obedient Christian life against all opposition. It is truly a war. But one day, all things will be made right. We will be brought into final rest with God in eternity as God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. We like that picture, and the world would have us believe either that that place does not exist, or that every single human will reach that place, whether they believe in Christ, or rebel against God and live in sin. So hear the words of Scripture a few verses later. In Revelation 21, 6 through 8. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murders, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Apart from Christ, there is only pain, death, and punishment forever. No one is let off the hook because the judge of all the earth will do what is right. The world says sin leads to freedom and joy and happiness, but the truth is that sin only leads to pain, death, and judgment. So who do you listen to? God has spoken finally, fully, and definitively in Jesus Christ, his son, the second person of the Trinity. He is full of grace and truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ, and salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do not abandon Jesus, the ultimate prophet. Do not neglect the full revelation of God in Christ Jesus, but turn to him and live. So, as we see Jesus as the ultimate prophet, the one who reveals truth, do you know the truth? First and foremost, that's what you should ask. Do you know the truth? And then believer, you who know Jesus, do you seek to know him more? Just take stock for a moment. Think of the amount of time you spend daily pursuing the truth in Jesus. What did your time look like with God each day this week? While all the lies of the world swirl around us, attempting to make us stray from the straight and narrow path, as sin is crouching at the door, ready to attack, know the truth. The best way to combat lies is to know the truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. And apart from him, there is no joy, peace, or hope. So how do we get to know Jesus better? A good start, as I've already asked you to think about, is time in the word and time in prayer. I was encouraged by the youth two days ago on Friday, um, and I'll share this with you to hopefully spur you on in your faith as well. Um, I had nine boys from uh, grades 9 through 12 commit to memorize a passage of scripture this week. It's not, I don't have a schedule for them, I don't like make all these things, but kids want to memorize scripture. They want to know the truth. I don't know, they can sometimes put us to shame, <laughs> right? The psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Is that true of you? Have you hidden his word in your heart that you might not sin against him? I think sometimes we can battle against sin and battle against sin and get so discouraged, like, oh man, why do I keep falling to this sin? Why do I always boil up in anger and lash out? Or why do I always say things that are stupid? I think sometimes we can struggle with that and say, well, I'm a believer in Jesus. Why am I struggling with this? But then we don't spend time with him. We don't read his word. We don't pray. We don't memorize scripture. So know Jesus. Spend time with him daily. This point, I know it sounded very evangelistic at the start, and it is, because if you don't know Jesus, you should know Jesus. But then once you get to know him, there is an infinite store to get to know him deeper and deeper, have a deeper experience of Christ, and to live a life more in alignment with his word.
Jesus is truth. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the one who reveals God to us and contains truth. So next in this passage, we see Jesus as the ultimate priest, the one who accomplished purification from sin. The writer says, after making purification for sins, he sat down. It's very short, but there are two aspects in that that I want to focus on, which are very important to understand. First, the purification for sins, and then, two, the fact that Christ sat down. That'll make sense as we talk about that. The original readers, being Jewish, they had a deep understanding of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And so, throughout the whole book of Hebrews, he's referring back to the old system, back to uh, the sacrifices, back to the priests, back to how all of that worked. And so, just for you, so we don't have to read 13 chapters of Hebrews, um, here's a little summary of the Old Testament system. Zaspel writes, Old Testament sacrifice was intended to signify more than mere homage. The significance was that of securing forgiveness, expiation of sin, through the offering of a substitute. The offerer is not portrayed as a mere creature, but specifically as a sinner, a sinful creature in need of forgiveness. The sacrificial victim bears the sin of the worshiper who receives forgiveness by that substitutional sin-bearing. So that was the pattern in the Old Testament. Sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. Sin put onto a sacrificial victim and given to God to receive cleansing, to receive forgiveness. That was the pattern in the Old Testament, which contained five different types of sacrifices. And so Hebrews, as I mentioned, picks up on this theme, uh, mainly in chapter 9, explaining in verses 1 to 10 the various preparations and rituals of the Old Testament priests, and then it describes the high priest entering the holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement to make an offering for both himself and for the people. And he explains that the sacrifices could never perfect the conscience of worshipers under this system. And instead, he looks forward to what he calls the time of reformation. So I'll read a a section of Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14, and 24 to 26, if you want to turn there, Hebrews 9. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I know it's a long section, there's a lot in there, but isn't that amazing? What did you notice? The old priest's needed to take animals in day after day and year after year for sin, continually offering these sacrifices 
to receive forgiveness. But as the writer mentions in verse 12, Christ has entered once for all, once for all, into the holy places by his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And in verse 26, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What does that mean? Christ made full and final purification for sin. Christ didn't provide temporary purification, which would need to be constantly renewed, constantly sacrificed for, but full and final purification, once for all purification by his own blood, thus showing that he is the ultimate priest. So that's number one. We understand what he refers to when he says purification for sin. Now let's talk about sitting down. It might seem not as significant. Maybe this would seem like it should be more connected with Jesus as the king, which it also is. But it's important as we think of his work as a priest because it signifies that his work is finished. It's completed. The Old Testament high priests couldn't sit down after their work. They had to stay up and walk out of the holy place only to have another priest come in year after year after year after year to do this work and to continue this work. Hebrews 10 verse 12 picks up on this uh, act of the priest sitting down. Jesus, the great priest, in Hebrews 10 verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So you see, Jesus, the ultimate priest, after he had completed his work, sat down because his work was and is full, final, complete, and finished. And so what does that mean for us? Jesus did not die for us to continue living in sin. Jesus died to set us free from sin, to purify our hearts and our minds, and to allow us to walk in newness of life. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. My friends, salvation has been accomplished in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. He has saved us, purified us, and redeemed us from dead works to serve the living God. Why would we deviate from that? Of course, you'd say, well, we won't deviate from that. But how do we do that in our daily walk? We can sometimes think that we need to do all these things to be saved, right? We're going to work our way into heaven. But that's not, that's not what Jesus did, right? Jesus' work is final and complete. It's finished. And those who believe in him will be saved. And apart from Jesus, apart from faith in him, there is no salvation. Believer, have faith and preserve your soul. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says to the people. Have faith and preserve your soul. Remain in Christ and do not deviate from his work. Christ has made full and final payment for sin, bringing full and final purification. And he has cleansed us for service to God. So stand firm. Take refuge in Christ's finished work. If the enemy comes at you and says, oh, you're not doing enough, you're not working hard enough, you're not doing enough for the Lord, Jesus has accomplished full and final 
purification from sin. If the enemy points at your past and says, oh, you're, you're too much of a sinner to have been saved, you can't be truly saved, so now you've got to go and make up for all the things you've done so that you can be saved. For those in Christ, there is no condemnation. Rest in Christ's finished work. Rest. You don't need to earn it for yourself. After you come to him, true faith produces works, but your works do not save you. Faith alone saves, but faith is never alone. Rest in Christ's work. Satan would love for you to drown in shame and guilt over your sin, but Jesus paid the price. The work is finished. Do not look back at your sin in guilt and shame because you've been cleaned, you've been purified, you've been cleansed. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. And what does he say in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Walk forward in newness of life. Preach the gospel to yourself every day and live in the freedom that Christ has purchased. Sometimes we rush so fast past the basics of the gospel that we need to be reminded. You don't need to work for your salvation. You can't save yourself. Rest in Christ. Rest in Christ and serve him out of a heart of faith, not out of a heart of earning your, your salvation. If you're not a Christian here today, the way of salvation has been laid before you. The world says many things that contradict what the Bible says. Maybe you believe that there's no God and this life is all there is. Maybe you believe that all religions lead to God and it doesn't really matter which one you choose. Maybe you believe that sin isn't actually all that bad and God will save us all no matter what. No matter what we believe, no matter how we live our lives. All of those things are lies. God has revealed himself through the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, who is also the ultimate priest and the only way of salvation. His sacrifice is the only way that humans can be saved. The supposed salvation that the world offers is a hopeless lie. So let's walk through it. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. The natural state of all mankind is one of condemnation. No matter how good you think you are, if you are apart from Christ, we are all under judgment because... Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us deserve the wages of sin, which is death. On our own, we all fall into this category of those who oppose God, who rebel against him and deserve punishment. But there's good news. God, who is rich in mercy and grace because of his great love, has provided a sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ. Jesus came to the earth, lived a righteous life, and then died in the place of sinners on the cross. Through his death, he provided purification from sin for all those who believe in his name. We can't earn it. That's why in Romans 10, 9 through 11, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So non-believer, if you are trusting in your own good works to be saved, or banking on the fact that God isn't real and there's no afterlife, you will be mistaken when your time on earth is ended. The world wants you to believe its lies. The world wants you to neglect the great salvation offered in Christ. 
But Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus, the ultimate revelation of God, is truly the only way to be saved. Jesus, the better Moses and the better priest, is the one who will lead his people into eternity at the end of the age where there is no more pain, crying, sin, or death. Believe in Christ, the ultimate priest. Find purification in his once-for-all sacrifice and serve the living God. And rest. Rest in the purification that he has accomplished. Rest in Christ's work. Finally, in this passage, we see Jesus is the ultimate king. So verse 3b. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Not only is Jesus seated on high as the priest who has completed his work, he is also seated as the king on the throne. We see Jesus in this verse seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, ruling and reigning over all creation, crowned with glory and honor after what? After his work of purification has been completed. In this verse in Hebrews, there's an allusion to Psalm 110, which is hard to pick up, um, but... It crops up multiple times throughout the letter, multiple times, and is a key text that the the writer to the Hebrews continues to return to. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And verse 5 says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Jesus, in his own ministry, alluded to this same thing, the same position at the right hand. In Luke twenty-two sixty-nine, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Peter agrees in 1 Peter three twenty-two that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And Paul also agrees in Philippians 2, 9 through 11 that because of Christ's work on earth, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see all throughout the New Testament Jesus is the ultimate king. He is the king enthroned forever on the throne of David. We see this pattern through the Old Testament as well, pointing forward to Christ. He is on the throne of David, as promised in 2 Samuel 7. Jesus reigns over all as the King of kings and Lord of lords, with the name that is above every name, and all things will be subjected to him. This is Jesus, the ultimate king, the one to whom all will bow. And right now, in our world, not everything is in subjection. Many people are still in rebellion against God. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, continually fighting against him. This is not due to any powerlessness in God, but actually due to his mercy. Jesus could return immediately, punishing sin, binding and condemning Satan, and having all things finally subjected to him. So why does he wait? Why does he wait? Why doesn't he do this immediately? 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as we read that promise about eternity, as some count slowness, but is patient 
toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's patience in returning and making all things right is an act of mercy so that more people will come to Christ, so that more people will subject themselves and be saved. Now is the day of salvation. If you don't know Christ, believe in Christ and be saved. The reality is that not all will come to Christ. Not all will believe and receive salvation. Just two verses earlier, in 2 Peter 3, 7, Peter writes, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The ungodly, sinful, and wicked will be punished. Those in rebellion against God when Jesus returns will face judgment for sin. When the King of Kings returns, he will set all things right. So whom do you serve? What king do you bow down to? Our world worships self and wants us to do the same. They say man is the measure of all things, and you are the master of your own destiny. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus was very clear throughout his ministry that sin will be judged. One example often overlooked is the parable of the net in Matthew 13, 47 to 50, right after the passage about the pearl of, or the, the treasure that the man went and sold all he had to buy. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The world tells you that Jesus doesn't talk about hell. Jesus talks about hell. Jesus talks about judgment. Some other references are Luke 16, 19-31, Mark 9, 42-50, and especially Matthew 25. Those who rebel against God and oppose Jesus Christ will be subjected to him and will face judgment. Remember, sin brings forth death. Rebellion against God rightfully merits punishment. But the good news is, because of this great king's work as the ultimate priest, we can be reconciled to God. We no longer need to live under the weight of sin and death, but we can set, be set free to serve the living God. So as I said before, repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus. It's all real. Turn from trusting in yourself and submit to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Reject the lies of the world and surrender your life to Jesus Christ, the great King over all. And believer, serve the King gladly. When we think of subjecting ourselves or being in service of someone else, we don't generally tend to think of it as a glad and happy thing. But in this case, it is. Because who is our King? Our king is not a capricious tyrant. Rather, he is gentle and lowly, full of grace and truth, looking after the downcast and trodden, pouring out his grace and mercy on his servants. Serving this king is not a heavy, bur heavy burden. The yoke of Jesus is easy, and his burden is light. Serving this king is the most soul-satisfying thing you can do on this earth. And it's God's delight, it's God's delight for us to delight in him. So look to Jesus 
the ultimate king, supreme over all, and find a life of joy lived for him. Don't walk around like all sad and depressed, like you serve a good king. You serve a good king. Go to him, bring to him your burdens. He's not one to, to whip us into shape. And sometimes he does that, which we need, right? But he looks out for the downcast. He looks out for the trodden. He is full of grace and truth. Bowing down to him is the most soul-satisfying thing we can ever do. He's our crucified and resurrected king with whom we also have been crucified and now it's Christ who lives in us. All glory to the king. So as we end our consideration of these three offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, I want to read from John Flavel, a Puritan pastor in the 17th century who wrote about Christ the king and how it ties these three offices together. If you don't know the Puritans, Go and read the Puritans. They're so good. So listen for prophet, priest, and king in this section. We now come to the regal office by which our glorious mediator executes and discharges the undertaken design of our redemption. Had he not, as our prophet, opened the way of life and salvation to the children of men, they could never have known it. If they had clearly known it except as their priest, he had offered up himself to impetrate and obtain redemption for them, they could not have been redeemed by his blood. And if they had been so redeemed, yet had he not lived in the capacity of a king to apply this purchase of his blood to them, they could have had no actual personal benefit by his death. For what he revealed as a prophet, he purchased as a priest. And what he so revealed and purchased as a prophet and priest, he applies as a king. First, subduing the souls of his elect to his spiritual government, then ruling them as his subjects and ordering all things in the kingdom of providence for their good. So notice in there, subjection to Christ as king is not without its rewards. He orders all things in the kingdom of providence for their good. We just talked about God's providence on Friday with the youth. Romans 8.28, for those who love God, he works all things together for good. All things Good things, bad things, hard things, easy things. Subjection to Christ is not without benefit. Yes, we must give up everything to follow him, but what we receive is also much greater. When we submit to Christ as king, we give up sin, but we receive righteousness. We give up the right to live our lives however we please, but we receive eternal life an eternally perfect, better life in worship of our king forever. We give up the pursuit of worldly riches, but we receive immeasurable riches of grace in Jesus in the life to come. We give up ourselves, we receive Christ. It's not a burden, it's the most infinitely satisfying joy because it's the very reason we were created. Think all the way back to the garden. Think all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. We were created for relationship with God, to worship God. So when we fulfill our greatest end, we will find our greatest joy. You can tell I've been reading a lot of John Piper. Christ is our most satisfying joy. The only one worthy. 
To whom do you bow? We all bow to someone or something. He is the only one who works for the good of those who bow to him, Jesus Christ. If you bow to anything else, you'll be burned by that thing. If you bow to anything else, it won't satisfy. Bow to Jesus and find life and peace and every good thing. So, long ago, at many ways, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Believer, rejoice in the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Go to him for truth. Reject the lies of the world. Go to him for purification. Reject the false salvation that the world offers. Submit to him as king and then gladly serve him. If you're not a Christian, consider the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. While the world spews lies, Christ is truth. While the world contains empty promises, only in Jesus is true life and joy found in purification from sin and reconciliation with God. While the world tells you, you can be your own king, it actually enslaves you to the devil. Only Jesus is the rightful king enthroned above all, and he's the only king who blesses his servants abundantly beyond all that they could ask or imagine. Redemption, receive this benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear God, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you that you are a God who has revealed himself. You didn't set the world in motion and then walk away. You are transcendent, high above, yet you are imminent. You are near to every one of us. You have revealed yourself in Jesus as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your office as prophet, that you show us the truth. We thank you for your office of priest, that you have made full and final purification for sin, that we can be saved and reconciled to God. And we thank you for your office as king. We bow down before you and we gladly submit to your lordship because we know that your commands are good, your word is right, your precepts are trustworthy. And God, we see the inheritance that awaits the sons of God in light in eternity. We look forward to worshiping you forever. And so while we're here in this broken world, Equip us with everything good to do your will, to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We long to see your rule stretch from sea to sea. And it starts in our hearts. We pray that you would bring us to yourself, make us more like Christ. We worship and praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.